0: My guest today is Elena Artemonova. She is currently a PhD candidate for psychology at the Manchester Metropolitan University and has Master of Science in Psychology from University of London and Masters of Arts in Political Science from the University of Manchester. As a dyslexic herself, Elena is also passionate about helping other dyslexics excel academically. Please enjoy the show. <laughs>
1: Hello. Hi.
0: Um, Can you just give the audience a brief background of yourself?
1: Sure. Um, Thank you for having me. I'm very happy to be here. I'm originally from Russia, but I moved to UK when I was 17 to do my A-levels. And in terms of my academic background, I've completed a BA in Anthropology BSc in psychology, M.A. in political science, MSC in psychology, and I'm finishing my Ph.D. in social psychology.
0: Um, I think there's, <laughs> <laughs> there's such a big jump from um, when you first reach um UK, from Russia, um, to take your A-levels. So what sparked that tran- transition in the first place, and why the UK, and why not, for example, the U.S.?
1: That's quite an interesting question, actually. Um, it's all down to my parents. I come from a very academic background. So my, my, mom and bo- my mom and my dad, both professors. So my mom is a professor of ecological law. And my dad is a professor of advanced mathematics and engineering. <laughs> so I kind of didn't have a choice in terms of education. But um, in Russia, I always struggled to express myself and... Back in the day, in schools in Russia, it was quite difficult to for students who had their own opinions to be heard. Um, so my parents kind of decided that the best for me would be to go abroad. And UK, back in 2009, had one, I would assume, one of the best educations. And it still does to this day. But back in 2009, it was just something that everyone wanted to do and something that everyone wanted to be part of. And my parents decided that it was best for me to go to UK. I think that's what sparked the whole process. And to be honest, I spoke and learned English from the age of five. So it would have been not as difficult of a transition that if I went to another, some different country that didn't speak English, if that makes sense. In terms of why it's UK not US, um, I think because at the time my parents were so convinced that UK had a better educational system and better opportunities for me than US does because of certain relations between US and Russia and obviously the political climate at the time of the country and the recession taken into account. So I think the UK was the best choice for them and for me, it turns out.
0: (laughs) So you talk about how you struggled to express yourself while you were in Russia. So do you mind giving um examples of that? And was it was was it a structural issue that prohibited people from speaking up and expressing themselves?
1: Of course. It's um see, I put it this way, I love my country, but when it comes to education, when it comes to political climate, it's very difficult to express yourself. Not everyone counts your opinion and your opinion is not very much heard or valid, um, especially when it comes to authority figures like teachers or certain political leaders, etc. cetera. Um, in terms of when I was in school, I used to actually argue with my teachers quite a bit um, and they, because I always thought It's better to ask a question than keep it in and not knowing exactly what was happening or not knowing the exact answer. And that's exactly what I did. And I spoke up and I wanted to debate. I want. So one of the examples I could think of was um, when I did chemistry in school. Because in Russia, we had to do loads of subjects and then we don't even narrow them down for A-levels. We just had to do about 16 subjects and just kind of cope with that. (laughs) Um, So one of the examples would be when I did chemistry, for example, and um, I spoke up about, it was one of, I couldn't understand why certain things were made the way they were. And I kept on asking questions. I kept asking questions and questions and questions. And the teacher got so annoyed with me that she sent me to the principal's office saying, "Elena, you really need to stop asking questions because it gets to the point where you're not going to graduate, you're not going to get a job and I'm going to give you a bad grade." This is how bad it was.
0: so was it, was it more so what popped my mind was that you, don't, you didn't seem to have asked any questions that kind of question the authorities, it seems more like you ask the questions of curiosity. Could it be possible that perhaps your teachers just, just didn't have the answers because um, I, I do have this Um, even for myself, I, I often realize that I have very poor understanding of any topic, especially when I try to teach it to someone, that's when I realize that perhaps I don't understand it well at all. So could it be that it wasn't so much of a political structure or was it because just your teacher's Just didn't have answers. Yeah.
1: To be honest, it is completely possible. She just might have not known. But considering she was a teacher with 30 odd years of experience in chemistry, I thought the questions I was asking, me being 15-year-old, shouldn't have been that hard. But it is a possibility. It is a complete possibility.
0: So my experience with the sciences is that um, it's extremely easy to. To think that you know something and just you know pass by through the years without actually knowing it um yeah so uh, I think it was um Feynman who said something along the lines of you know um you want to be able to explain something uh to a five-year-old and if you don't you don't if you can't you don't really understand it so maybe that's <laughs> maybe your teachers <laughs> just didn't pass the bar so um but just, I'm just a bit curious about the cultural backgrounds and I'm asking these questions also because of your um, experience and, and your background in training in anthropology and political science and all that. So um, w- while you were growing up in Russia and um, obviously you didn't grow up in UK but imagine that if you grew up in UK, aside from questioning authorities, do you feel that there was any other more macro um, issues that would influenced your thinking?
1: Well, that's quite an interesting question. <clears throat> you see, um, I, it's quite difficult to say. When growing up in Russia, I, I'll be honest with you, I had a good life. Um, my parents always treated me nicely. I always had best, well, best education as they could possibly give me in Russia. Um, I was always the way they were bringing up was very European. So they always wanted me to debate. They always wanted me to ask questions. They always wanted me to read and watch documentaries. And that's what I grew up on. And um, I don't think it would be for me personally, much of a difference in terms of when I moved to the UK. But I think for a lot of middle-class brought up very Russian generations, um, similar age to mine, it would be quite difficult for them To move and I know a couple of people back home back in Russia um, that specifically stated they they moved to UK to study but they couldn't so they they had to move back to Russia and I don't know whether it's due just to cultural differences or whether it's due to also educational system and the inability like the English language barrier and things like that but um, in terms of culture I think One of the biggest adjustments for me personally was the food. I know it might sound silly, but um, I struggled with British food for a while. I couldn't get my head around fish and chips. I couldn't understand why would you have a massive roast dinner on Sundays? Whereas in Russia, it's like we we usually eat loads of salads and soups and the soups are completely different to UK soups. So things like that I couldn't get my head around. Um, But other than that, it wasn't, that can very culturally difficult transition for me because of where I was brought up. But I would imagine for a someone who was brought up very Russian would struggle.
0: So were your parents um, in Russia their whole life or did they actually go overseas to study for some time? Because um, clearly they have a more uh, non-Russian view and uh, I don't know whether that's a good way to put it, but they, I would say they have a broader view than just being confined to what the culture expected of them. So, um, where do you think that sense of the, that global awareness come from?
1: You see, that's very interesting because my dad is originally, he was born in Siberia and my mom was born in the South of Russia. And they met kind of in St. Petersburg, which is the cultural capital of Russia. And because both of them being so embedded within the books and the literature, they read so much, they studied, they kind of they were like I can only describe them as sponges they kind of taken all of that literature that they read about the west about Russia and kind of formed their own opinion rather than just follow general opinion of what the Soviet Union at the time was saying because both my parents were born in the Soviet Union so I think that was quite an important the way they were bringing me up because they always said to me that I have to form my own opinion about things rather than just follow the lead of everyone else because without forming your own opinion you would never be able to progress you would stay on the same level and you will never ask questions you will never be able to transition towards something better or towards something bigger so I think that was quite big for me and for them. And I think also my parents never studied abroad. My parents never, they'd done all of their education in Russia, but I think it also depends where they come from because they come from such a small places in Siberia or in South Russia. And then they kind of moved to cultural capital and saw all the museums and literature. And I think that's what influenced them the most about forming their own opinion about the West rather than what the Soviet Union was saying.
0: So follow-up question is that, um, I suppose you do have children right now, right? Yes. Right, so if you were to bring up your own children, how would you encourage them to form their own opinion? I think it's easy to um, to, to say that oh, I want to be a parent who encourages my children to form their own opinion until they keep asking why and you tell them that, because I told you so, <laughs> 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 or because until you encourage them to form their own opinion, until they tell you that, oh, um, they want to be an artist, and you say that, hey, uh, you can't support yourself being an artist, which may not be true. Um, Mm -hmm. So what are the certain protocols or even systems that you will have in place to encourage your own child to to be able to form their own opinion?
1: I don't have children yet.
0: I know I know but, so, so, so that's I, I neither do <laughs> I but it's, it's just I, yeah. I think I think whether even for whether it's your own children or, or for your own students when I suppose when when you get um, a PhD you'll probably guide some other um, PhD um, students as well so just just that mentality yeah
1: yeah I know I completely understand I think I want my kids to be able to understand the world around them I want them to know the truth about the world I want them to know that yes there are bad things happens but yes there are also good things to every part of the world and I want them to see that for themselves I want them to once they reach a certain age obviously I'm not going to feed them documentaries on crime at the age of five but I want them to see what the real world is like I don't want them to be sheltered from it I want them to understand that yes there is famine. Yes, there is hunger. There are, yes, there is diseases. But there is also good things. Yes, we have certain animals that were brought back from extinction. Yes, we have education. Yes, we have certain things that were developed, like we're going to Mars, etc. I want them to be able to see both sides. And I think that's really important. As long as the kids are not sheltered from the reality of the world, that's when they form their own opinion, because they have the both sides to the story rather than a single side you can't I, d- I don't think you can show your kids just how good the world is and how beautiful everyone and how friendly everyone is i think they need to know that there are dangers out there but as long as they're aware of it they can avoid them does that make sense and i think that's what i that's what i will do probably and the other big thing for me was the reading so i want them to read i want them to read different literature starting from crime novels finishing to Dostoevsky or war and peace if that makes sense I want them to read everything I want them to understand everything and I want them to also read between the lines not just what it says in the book that makes sense
0: so I'm very curious when you mentioned about reading between the lines Um, when you mentioned that I've been thinking have I ever read between the lines my whole life <laughs> maybe I have just taken everything at face value so um can you give me an example of uh I know it's hard to come up with an example right now but an example of reading between the lines or, or any memory of you doing so when you read certain texts
1: I think you see because I grew up on a lot of Russian literature you kind of have to read between the lines because what it says Yes, you can take it as a face value, but usually it has an underlying meaning. So, for example, even War and Peace, yes, it was during the war. It was um, talking about the love, but actually, the underlying issue was socio-political, economical climate within the country. That was the understanding of the book. So, I think that's what I mean when I say between the lines. So you have to understand. Yes, take it as face value. There's talking about love. It's talking about war, etc. But actually it's talking about social political economic climate. I think that's what I meant when I said reading between the lines.
0: Sure, um, we, we keep coming to this topic of Russian literature so I'm just very curious um, which language do you find more beautiful, the English language or the Russian language?
1: Oh that's, that's a difficult question. Um, I wouldn't say Russian language is beautiful per se, it is very difficult, it is very whiny and it's um it has a lot of words put into it. English is a lot easier um I, I wouldn't say either of them very beautiful I think French is very beautiful I think Spanish is very beautiful but where, if I had to pick between Russian and English I think I would say Russian is more beautiful in terms of how you can express yourself rather than in English.
0: So the reason I asked um is I'm bilingual in English and Mandarin as well. So even though English is the working language for Singapore, uh, and most Singaporean Chinese, they, they are terrible at Mandarin. Um, but uh, I, just, I just find the Mandarin language especially beautiful. Um, and... I just have that sensitivity towards it. So so when I talk about uh, a language being more beautiful, I think it's also conditional on whether someone has that sensitivity towards that language. Um, so I just want to stay on Russia for a while more because um, I, I just find that whole history interesting. Not that I have studied the history, but, but the, whole, the whole idea of um, Singapore is just, you know, we have been around for 50 plus years. 50 plus oh, crap. i can't remember how is my country but in just a few decades um and we we haven't experienced a sort of um perhaps i would say imperial power or, or the sense of um dynasty prestige that uh, a country like russia will have so um i'm just very curious does it permeate um, through the everyday life of her citizens i
1: um i struggle with that you know i uh Russia is very unique in the way it perceives things. I think because of everything that Russian people have been through throughout the years in the past, and when I say Russian people, I'm talking about um, Russian people specifically. I'm not talking about, uh, for example, ex-Soviet Union countries, Um, because if I can't say Ukrainian people are Russian, I can't say Kazakhstan people are Russian, because obviously Russian people are Russian. And to be honest, Russia is such a, at the moment, because we've been through so much and because of the Soviet Union past and because of our imperial past, um, Russia is so becoming so multicultural, if that makes sense. It's not multicultural with the West, but it's more multicultural with the East. And um, it's actually quite interesting to see that transition. The more I go home, um, I haven't been home for a while because of the pandemic, but... Um, when I see what I see on the news or when I speak to my friends back home, I see how more developed it becomes every year, even though, yes, political climate is very difficult at the moment. And I honestly believe at some point, we're gonna be on the brink of another revolution. But um, there is a lot more, the the generation is growing up. They're a lot more, they question things. They wanna learn things. They wanna learn things about the West, But at the same time, they love their country, which I think is such a big thing. Whereas back in the day, it was um, all about Russia. It was all about the Soviet Union or it was all about Imperial Russia. It was all about loving the king. It was all about loving Stalin or loving Lenin. So I think that transition of actually loving the country rather than the leader is quite a big thing. Um, I don't know if that answers your questions at all.
0: Um, I guess yes and no, but I wasn't looking for a modern answer well because I have no idea. So perhaps a, as a context for contrast is that um, in Singapore, we are such a small island state that um, it's kind of due in, in us through the leadership that our role is really to do not mess with the big players <laughs> on the global stage. So we, we always present ourselves as the very nice balance of powers between the West and the East. You know, um, between U.S. and China, we are like that neutral party that we refuse to take sides because you, we can't afford to um, um, offend anyone. And and I I don't have any proof for this, but I do wonder at times whether that um that um cultivates a, a mentality of um submission among Singaporeans and let me give an example for that is that I just graduated from college and I've been like um, I do not say job hunting but I've been um, just looking for sources of income Um, and the predominant mentality among all my peers is that they just want to work at a big company and or just get employed and that's it employment is the way to go whereas um, if you look at um, US you know, they are a lot more, and it's my sense that aside from employment, they can think in terms of entrepreneurship or in terms of, you know, careers like being a comic or being uh, an artist, things like that. So I do wonder whether there's a sense of submission amongst Singaporeans. And um, if you ever read the news about Singapore, we are trying to be like, you know, the tech hub for the future. The st- we are very friendly to startups. But the issue is that um, I suspect that um, Singapore will attract many foreigners here to start companies, but Singaporeans themselves will still remain employees of these startups. Which, mm. which I mean, there's nothing morally wrong or bad about that. It's just it indicates to me a sense of submission. So I was just wondering whether, um, whether because Russia, like, it has a, such a rich history, um, do their citizens carry themselves differently in their beliefs, in their day-to-day um, actions?
1: It's actually quite interesting that you brought the uh, sense of submission because, um, I found actually in my PhD, um, I study personality, aggression, and prejudice, and, um, I found a very interesting link that I've never seen before in any of the literature. And, um, it's actually quite big for me. And, um, it turned out that I use something called social justification theory to explain it. So, um, I found a link between aggression and certain files of submission. So for example, within the personality, there is, um, let's say I'm studying dark personalities and normal range of personalities. And um, with a normal range of personalities, you have neuroticism, conscientious, et cetera. And I found the link between someone being aggressive but agreeable at the same time. So. In normal literature, the link is negative and non-existent, really, because person can't be agreeable and aggressive. If that makes sense. Whereas in Russia, for some unknown reason, the link between aggression and agreeableness is strong and positive. And I couldn't get my head around it to begin with. I thought it could be some—it's something definitely to do with my data, but. I ran the tests and um, it turned out it wasn't. It turned out that most likely explanation is the fact that Russian people became so so submissive with their lives and became so embedded within how their lives are going. The fact that they have no control over it anymore and the link between being aggressive and agreeable, that's where it becomes positive. They don't see... Aggression anymore is aggression. They just see it as a way of life, I suppose, to a certain extent. They see it more as a um, kind of just living. They see that everyday aggression, they see those protests and they see what's happening, what um, certain political leaders are doing, etc. And they see it as just a way of life. They don't see it as a threat. They don't see it as anything else. They see it just a way of life. And I think that's a quite important considering our history because I think it's been so embedded within Russian people that we have to submit to whatever is going on that there is no other option, that that's the only option that we have. And I think it was the same with... Um, what happened in the past, like for example, when we're talking about the revolution, um, what people people were unhappy. Let's be honest, people were hungry. People were unhappy, but um, Lenin took it and completely converted it into something bigger than it needed to be, or bigger than. Even the actual Russian person wanted to see it. And he managed to rile up the crowds and create the revolution. And I think that's what happened with the Soviet Union. And I think that's what's happening now. We take our state of unhappiness and merge it with being very submissive and agreeable. And that's where you get the crowd of people um, trying to overthrow the government, trying to revolutionize the country. And I think that's what's happening basically, but I completely agree in terms of submissiveness. Even though Russia has such a rich history and we are still kind of count as a power nation, um, but at the backbone, in terms of people, it's so embedded. We don't have to agree with the authority figure or we have to agree with something that's happening, that there's no other choice. And I think that's quite an important um, thing to say really so yeah i completely agree
0: with you well quite a few traits that, that we can explore Sorry. i'm just trying to decide which one to go into um <laughs> perhaps the first part about, about having you know um seemingly contrasting personality traits um I'm not sure if you read zero to one by peter thiel but um peter thiel is what well, he, you he, he was one of the founders of um paypal um then he was the first outside investor of facebook and he has um he's basically quite a successful venture capitalist nowadays and yes he it's pretty much kind of an like intellectual and and in this book zero to one he basically just talks about the the startup um he just imparts some knowledge about startups but i think what really left an impression on me is that he said that uh we usually think that people personalities traits exist on the spectrum for example um uh, I am a positive, and a, some people are just more positive. Some people are just more negative. But he says that, or, or, or some people are just more charismatic. Some people are just like you know less charismatic or, or very vulgar. But whereas he says that um, leaders are actually they, they actually fulfill two very seemingly contrasting traits. I think he used the example of Steve Jobs that someone who was very charismatic, but it could be extremely um, tough and 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 insensitive to to his um employees at Apple so um, that's just something that off my mind um, I, I was just looking through you know what, what you sent me in the email yesterday about your past paper so, so there was this term that struck out to me that I, I just hope you can explain is this thing called cultural synthesis um, because it's in the context of um, I believe Russia as well so um, do you mind explaining what what are the three cultural synthesis
1: Oh, of course so Cultural synthesis, it's uh, to do with the, one of the publications, isn't it? Um, you see, cultural synthesis, I think it's emerging of several different cultures within into one. So when I was talking about the paper, it's talking about from political climate. When I did um, research for the specific paper, I was looking at how cultures within Russia emerge because... When you talk about, for example, even on the simplest terms, when you talk about Russian food, right? You think, for me as a Russian person, I think of um, shashlik, I think of specific salads, I think of specific soups. However, shashlik is actually from Kazakhstan. One of our famous salads is actually from Belarus. One of our famous soups is actually from Ukraine. So I think, Cultural synthesis is when emerging of different cultures come together and become one. So Russia per se doesn't have its own apart from dresses and apart from certain headwear, we back in the day we don't really have a specific, I don't think we have actually have, have a specific culture because we're so merged with things around us. Even if you go now to Russia and you go far east it is very, you, you wouldn't be able to tell the difference between Russia and China there because we're bored with China and certain villages are pretty much the culture is almost identical. And I think that's what I meant by cultural synthesis. And um, in terms of political words, cultural synthesis, it's when we take, for example, bits and pieces from different countries and trying to implement it to our own So one of the examples that's been done a few years back now um, is taking, you know, the big exam that U.S. has, GDPR, I think it is, um, where they measure your average grade, and with that grade, you go to university. Um, They took that exam and just dropped it on Russia and implemented it without actually adjusting it to what Russian society are used to, what Russian students are used to. And what it resulted was in a huge drop of numbers of students being able to go to university. Because no matter the test, no matter whatever, you have to adjust it to the specific culture. Whereas what Russian government did is just took something from another culture or from another country and just dropped it and see how it would do. Now the actual exam has been adjusted and it's absolutely fine. But when it was originally implemented, it was just taken out of context and just dropped to us. And I think that's what I'm talking about in terms of political culture as well. So they take bits and pieces from the West, from the East, from somewhere else, and they just drop it and implement it and think it will just work, but it doesn't. So I think that's what cultural synthesis is for me personally.
0: So so the follow-up question I had um, when I wrote this question um, was apparently I didn't understand cultural synthesis. So this will be a bit of a... Uh, Left turns. So I apologize for that. Is um.
1: <laughs> That's
0: fine. So, what do you think of the current states of events in Russia? And um, part of it is that I just feel that um, as a Singaporean, the the media that I consume is mostly from US, which can be pretty biased as well. So, um, but at the same time, you seem um, like like you mentioned, you feel that there will be a revolution um, because of the state of events in Russia. So, what do you think of? Russia now? And, and what do you think of Putin?
1: It's a, it's a hard question. Um, you see, I, I love my country. I think Russia is an amazing country and I think people are lovely. If you get to know Russian people, they're very open. They will welcome you to their home, give you a huge amount of salads to eat and become your new best friends. But when it comes to the political climate within the country, it's very hard. It's getting very um, authoritarian in my opinion. Some people would disagree, but in my opinion, it's getting very authoritarian. I think people have no control of their lives anymore. And I think it shows. It shows that the younger generation of people are going onto the streets and protesting. Peaceful protests started to turn into something very aggressive. From the government side because the military has been deployed or the police have um, specific weapons and they have tasers and things like that. I know in the UK for example police are not allowed to carry taser guns and things like that whereas in Russia it, it is they're allowed to carry guns and taser guns. So I think it's getting very it's getting really out of hand because of how everything's been handled and I don't have a personal opinion on Putin. I don't think, back in the day when he just started, it was um, 20 odd years ago, he did, I think, try to change the country. And I think he did try to change it for the best. He paid off our debt, he built roads, he built hospitals, he tried. And I don't know whether something snapped with his personality or something happened because once you're in the system, I think the system bends you to its will. I don't think you can go against the system. So, and we all know Russia, unfortunately, is quite a corrupt country. There's no really going about it. So I think that's what happened and um, it's starting to get progressively worse. So I'm not sure if you're familiar with the, um, one of the current laws that's been implemented in Russia is the fact that it's a law of freedom of speech. And for the first time in forever, in Russian history, journalists are under that law, whereas basically they can go to prison for treason if they spoke against the current government, things like that. And um, I think it goes against basic humanity rights. I think it goes against basic freedom of speech rights. And unfortunately, that's the reality we have to live with. Um, As much as I would love it to change, I don't think unless we're going to have a revolution, which I think eventually in a few years, it might, it might happen because of how unhappy people are. But um, unless he steps down or unless we have some sort of um, revolution or some sort of uh, awakening within the political system of Russia, nothing is going to change. But, and it's that that's a sad reality, really. But I um, I think I see it as, you know, Navalny, which is basically the big opposition of Russia, of Putin, the big opposition of Putin. And there's people out there who don't believe either in Putin, don't believe in Navalny, but they believe in the freedom of the country, in the freedom of people. And I think that's where I stand. I think I don't believe in Putin. I think Navalny is great, but I don't think he is a leader. If that makes sense. I think what people, Russian people need is a genuine to the core freedom. And I think that's what will change the things in the country.
0: I'm gonna ask um two follow-up questions. The first is um what do you think of China then? Because aside from the proximities also last year we have um was it last year or two years ago we have um yeah, two years ago we have um plenty of um Action in the streets of Hong Kong, <laughs> to put it yeah. Um, yeah. nicely. <laughs> and um, the follow-up question is that uh, you, you have always expressed your love for Russia. Um, I'm also curious what you think the the future of nations will be. Um, I think that's a bit fake. So first you can just talk about from different view on China, and I elaborate a bit more on the second question. Yeah.
1: Do you want me to know my opinion on China or uh, on Russia?
0: The- yeah, yeah, yeah. On that okay. because um I've asked quite a few people as well. Um I've asked people from US, if I have asked anyone who who's um either from either stay in the UK or or, or or who was brought in Russia. So I just I just love to hear different viewpoints. Yeah. yeah
1: fair enough. I um first of all I found Chinese culture, absolutely fascinating. Obviously, the dynasties, starting from the dynasties and working our way up to the modern culture. It is fascinating. Um, and I would love to actually take my survey that I've done for my PhD in terms of prejudice and aggression and implement it in China and see what the results are and then compare several different cultures. Like the West is something in between that Russia is and the, the actual Far East. It would be it would be fascinating to see. But um, in terms of political climate, I think, you see, I don't speak Mandarin or Cantonese, I wouldn't be able to see the actual sides of what's happening in the country. So I think what I see in the Western media, yes, it scares me, I'll be honest with you, I am shocked and confused about all the protests and how the government handled the protesters um, in terms of what we see in the media is like, they've they've been throwing tear gas and they've been throwing, um, they've been jailing people for things that they shouldn't be jailed for, things like that. But because I've seen this thing happen over and over and the media exaggerating the events that's happening in Russia, for example, I wanna know the actual side of the story. Either I wanna be there to see it or I wanna know from someone who's been there and seen it, if that makes sense but um i think when it comes to china i think it's quite similar in terms of to russia in terms of um how it is portrayed as a democratic country but really in fact it's getting more and more authoritarian i think that's what my general opinion is but i think it's um i think that's a lot of big countries with a lot of power i think that's a general kind of um Tendencies because even if you look at US, yes, they have freedom, but do they really have freedom? If that that would be my question, do they really have the freedom of speech? Look at what happened with the Trump elections, he still hasn't been arrested. He is definitely a kind of like Trump is um, definitely has to be arrested, he definitely has to go to court and he definitely has to be jailed for everything that he's done, but look at him, he's still free and he still wants to run for um, Republican Party in the future. And I think that's what I'm talking about when I say every big nation like China, Russia, America, UK, we all have these bits of authoritarian regime, but I think knowing from my personal perspective, Russia and China, I think are far more ahead in terms of being authoritarian than U.S. and U.K. is. I think that's what my opinion would be.
0: So do you think there'll be a cycle of um, centralization, decentralization, or do you feel that um, having a very strong uh, authoritative authoritative, uh, central (laughs) state be the end state for big nations? I
1: think... Yes, I think we're in the. I think we're in a part of history where we are becoming more and more centralized, um, in terms of at least in terms of for Russia and China, it's becoming more and more enclosed and it's becoming more and more centralized, focusing on one aspect on the government or on authoritative figures, I call them. And um, I think that's what happened for big nations. And I think even if you look at U.S. for example, let's be honest, the best option for U.S. would have been Bernie Sanders because he's purely democratic and he doesn't have behind him things like um, sexual assault accusations and things like that. He doesn't have that behind him. And um, still democratic party that's supposed to be representing the freedom of people, supposed to represent the freedom of speech, still went with someone who is over, yes, he's of a better background than Trump by a long shot, but he is still out of a questionable background. It's the same in the UK. If you look at the tendency to choose the leaders, for example, every one of our prime ministers, not everyone but apart from the women prime ministers um, they usually come from Eton they usually went to Cambridge and Oxford they usually come from a very good backgrounds, very good middle class families or rich families and I think it's the tendency with the majority of the world. it's the same with in the US and I think it's the same getting everywhere. So I think it's becoming more and more centralized, focusing on one specific group of people that have the ability to attain the power, that have the ability and the money to attain the power, because that's quite an important aspect. And I think that's why it's becoming more and more authoritarian, because people don't want to lose that. People don't want to lose their power. People don't want to lose money. And yeah, I think that's what's um, happening, unfortunately. <laughs> as sad as it is, but...
0: Um super to provide a different viewpoint, um, because I've I don't say I'm the tech scene, but I, I follow tech Twitter if that makes sense. Um mm-hmm. and uh, what I just mentioned, I think it kind of like if we just limit within the US, we can call it the East Coast um model of doing things whereby you know it's kind of like heritage. Uh, you go to good school, you you have come from a good family. And that's right now that's like the West Coast way, West Coast way of doing things. So um it doesn't matter where you come from. All you need to do is like be good at coding, be good at selling, um build great products and you can be a billionaire when you're in your twenties. So um I'm just thinking um do you do you feel that uh um, okay, this question may, may be bad. It would be bad because of how how um general it tries to be. But do you feel that that West Coast way of doing things will eventually be, perhaps how politics are in the future, not just for US, but. Um, maybe even in Russia or in China, whereby it's not so much of your background, but if you prove the capability to build something, uh, it doesn't matter what's your background, it doesn't matter what's your age, it doesn't matter what's your gender to a certain extent. Um, Sorry to say that, (laughs) we are still in a sexist (laughs) world. Um, um, Yeah, so do you feel that that there's any possibility of um, the West Coast way of um, leadership or, or of gaining credibility becoming more prominent even in politics? Not just in us but also in russia and china etc
1: no i completely understand i think what you're talking about is the um that that dream that we all have is the so-called the american dream is when you can move thousands of miles across the the globe and become a billionaire by working hard and playing your cards right and having the right environment and i think to a certain extent it is true and I think if you work hard and if you play your cards right and if you have the right environment yes you can become a billionaire at the age of 20 wouldn't be great but unfortunately the reality of the world is that there is certain class that's being pushed far ahead than other classes are and I think if you come from extremely poor background, if you come even from a middle class background, it's harder for you to pass push that barrier that puts you in the classes in the first place. So, um, for example, I know a lot of people who love to use examples like Bill Gates and where and um, the Apple people, and they love to see that yes, they created those amazing things out of their garage in a very poor neighborhood. But how many, if you look at the percentage, how many people are actually achieving that is it is a milliscule percentage. It's very, very difficult thing to do. You either, Bill Gates in reality is a very smart man. He's pretty much borderline genius about creating the computer software program. He can code like maniac. So I think, and he lives within that system. But I think for a general population of people to reach that level of money, to reach that level of success is a very difficult very difficult thing to do because then everyone will be doing it. It's the same if you look at even achieving, for example, education is a very difficult thing to do. To finish your degree is very hard because it requires several long steps of doing things over and over again and learning things. And then once you actually get it, it puts you in a little bit better position, but still, you're still there. You're still swimming around people and trying to find your way into career or you're trying to find your way into business or success or become an entrepreneur. So I think the idea of American Dream is a phenomenal idea. Yes, it it would be great to see the equality between everyone. And it would, honestly, I would love my kids to grow up In the world where everyone is equal, where we don't have the the scares and threats of wars, or we don't have the scares and threats of money, people are just happy living as they are and becoming successful at whatever they do. But unfortunately, the reality is is that there's always someone who is going to be more successful, and I think we see that more and more with the social media. We look at the TikTok, or we look at the Instagram and we see people 19 year olds driving Rolls-Royces and having loads of money millions and and you think why am I not one of them what have I done wrong in my life that I can't be one of them but the reality is is that usually they either come from a very rich background and they inherited that money or their parents given them that money or they worked extremely hard and they're good at a very specific Thing. like They have a very specific set of skills that they can take to next level, if that makes sense. So I think the idea, yes, of American Dream would be extremely amazing, but I think we are very, very, in terms of society, we are very, very behind when the idea of American Dream can be implemented to everybody.
0: So I think my question was not just about American Dream, but also about how, um, because right now political systems are very as a name implies a system. So it's, it's a very uh, procedural, like you have to get into the system, you have to kind of like progress, make your way up through the ranks. And yeah. even as you say about Putin, is that perhaps he got broken by the system. Um, so is it possible that we, we dem- democratize the system whereby the, the system is not, I don't have a good way of putting it, but whereby it's not as dominant and, and people they from outside people. the system for people by people from outside the system can into uh, politics more, and, and the reason I asked that is so because, um, like what you mentioned about um Bernie Sanders, and mm. um, is that he, he was kind of in the system, but he wasn't the favorite candidate, so he mm. got pushed aside by the party. And but if it was a truly transparent system, um, whereby you know you don't have the bank, you, you don't have the the political party machinery working in the background. Um Sanders would probably have won in twenty sixteen. Yeah. So what are your thoughts?
1: I think oh that's um yeah I, I know what you mean. It's um it's quite difficult. It's honestly it's very difficult to say. I like I said, I would love the system to take everyone equally. So for example, I would love if the, I would love for people to take best people from their backgrounds and implement it into a political system and make the society equal, if that makes sense. And um, having everyone representing a specific background would be absolutely incredible. But unfortunately, I don't think, I think Bernie Sanders was probably a bad example because he is from the system. He does come from a wealthy family. He does have education like
0: he, he wasn't like the most ideal <laughs> candidate, if that yeah. makes sense, as compared to, for example, yeah. Hillary no, in I, 2016 So, well, So
1: No, I completely agree with that. I, um, I think he was the best that they could do <laughs> at the time. But I think the most ideal way would be, yes, choosing someone from the real background of representing the real parts of the country. But same as in Russia, it would be amazing if the elections were actually counting votes <laughs> and if the elections were really happening and we had a real representative of each, for example, county, or if we had representative of people from different backgrounds, and then people can vote based on their previous experience and based on, for example, their background, based on their beliefs and views. But unfortunately, at the moment, the system is built the way that it favors the money. It favors the background. It favors your, let's be honest, it favors extremely rich white male. That's what it favors. It it doesn't really favor anything else. And I think that's that's the reality. And it's not a bad thing. It's nothing to do against being a white male (laughs) in your mid-60s or mid-70s. But it's just the system is built that way that it favors that type of people. Well, I think in the future, considering everything that's happening in the world and considering everything that's going on, I think, yes, we are moving towards more equal society because women are getting more or less equal pay or people from minority backgrounds are getting more opportunities to proceed and succeed. And I think that's very important because I've been looking at Twitter, for example, and I love to interact on Twitter and I see loads of people who come from first-generation education and I love seeing that because that is the reality. Yes, it's happening and it's happening right now, but I think we're so far away from being completely equal and completely unbiased and the system changing. It's just, I think we're so far away and I, I honestly don't know how to get there quicker than we do, if that makes sense, unless everyone suddenly becomes um very nice and willing to share their money. But I don't think that's gonna happen, unfortunately. But we are moving towards that, but very slowly.
0: Um, I'm just gonna jump through a few questions that I've sent you over email as well because about...
1: <laughs> Sorry, I love um, I love talking about these no, things.
0: No, but, no, um, all. Um, you don't have to apologize it's more like I keep asking questions about those. Um, areas and, and I just want to ask two questions that I sent yourself because I don't want to view that you spend maybe days thinking about them <laughs> but I don't <laughs> ask them at all um, so for my own good karma I'm just going to ask them as um, well which, which I'm interested in as well is that um, originally I did ask, ask you about um, how your training in discipline like disciplines like anthropology, psychology, political science influence your thinking but um uh, maybe I'm just gonna twist the question a bit. Is that um, I'm not sure you've been follow- following the whole idea of you know blockchains and all that. Um, have you been? Or... No,
1: unfortunately. Uh, okay,
0: then my question will fail here. But um, uh, yeah, perhaps we can then, then we can just stick with the original question. Is um, what are some you know ideas in each discipline that while you were studying them that really left an impression on you?
1: That's quite interesting. Um, you see, I think because I've been across so many disciplines and because they're all very different, I think it's kind of formed me to be a researcher I am today. And it, it made me think about things from different perspectives. So I like to do a multidisciplinary or multicultural research because I think when it comes to looking at specific issues, there's no black and white especially issues like prejudice and aggression in my case you can't just say yes it's due to cognitive abilities or yes it's due to behavioral issues no you you have to look from all the angles and once you have the full picture from different angles you can build your case so this is exactly what I've done I kind of um, looked at different disciplines that I've studied including anthropology, politics, psychology and I thought to myself how can I build a research that incorporates several things and make it multidisciplinary, but at the same time, look at different cultures. So that's exactly what I've done. And um, in terms of kind of training and it influencing my thought process, I definitely learned a lot from my original, um, my undergraduate degree in anthropology. It was, it opened my eyes to a lot of things. It's um, one of the things for example that i've done for my anthropology degree as part of my training for my dissertation i um went to siberia and i lived with shamans for a week and uh it, it was an amazing experience
0: sorry um what's what's that word again um sh- shaman's like i'm sorry i i have no idea why
1: shaman shaman is um basically someone who takes nature and takes it's like um it's a, it sounds really silly, but it's like a magical being, as opposed to an extent, and he takes the nature and he takes the energy and the notion of nature and implements into healing people. So that's a shaman.
0: Okay.
1: Yeah. It's a very um culture-specific terms, I think, shaman. And um, not everyone, like, it, it would be very familiar in the UK, in Russia. But I don't think it would be as much familiar in the East and the um, China, etc.
0: I think we do have the interest that um, if you are born in a city, you almost don't have I mean, you have, but in some sense, we can't ridicule these people. No offense to them, but um, please carry on with with your um, story. On no, no, this no.
1: I, I, understand. <laughs> I understand. It's it's a very um, it's a very bizarre concept of shamanism, but um, it derives from basically a very long-standing tradition of um, magic and using the earth's energy and the nature's energy to heal people it's like using even using the simplest remedies of specific combining specific little grass or leaves and healing people with that that's kind of that's what shamans do so for my dissertation i actually went to siberia and lived with them for a week and uh, i'll tell you that it was an experience (laughs) it was very interesting it made me learn how to interview a very specific group of people without being judgmental towards them, because I am not religious. I am, I'm an atheist. I don't, not that I don't believe in existence of more powerful things, but I don't, I don't have the evidence of that, if that makes sense. Once I have the evidence, I will probably believe in it.
0: I mean, I feel exactly the same way. So I've been, um, kind of challenging my more religious friends to come out with interesting, come up with good arguments for me, but I'm still waiting and I welcome, <laughs> I, I welcome any good arguments. Yeah.
1: That's exactly, that's exactly what I am. I think it's important to challenge things. I think it's important to question things, but um, so with the, so, so it basically taught me how to interview a specific group of people without stepping on anyone's toes without being judgmental without um kind of pre have a pre-formed opinion and that was the most important thing about my anthropological training that you do not have have a pre-formed opinion going into those type of scenarios because every group of people especially such a specific groups as shamans they see world completely different to us like it's an amazing they see so far away from our understanding of the world it, it's it's incredible and i think that was the most important thing that i learned from anthropology when it comes to political training i think i went into studying politics with kind of wearing a very pink glasses and seeing the world in a very different light that it actually is and um what it taught me i think is the fact that once you're in the system the system bans you if that makes sense And I think I've learned that through looking at the rhetorics and I've learned that through looking at, for example, history of genocides and things like that. And if people, even if people go into specific things with the best possible intentions, it doesn't mean that they're going to come out with the best possible outcomes. If that makes sense. So I think that was the best part of my political training. Um, In terms of psychology, because I've implemented all those things that I've learned from my previous backgrounds into psychology, I think it became more than just a psychology for me. It became a way of explaining people's behavior in a variety from variety of angles, rather than just seeing it in one scientific specific perspective. So I think that was the most important in terms of my training. Yeah.
0: Right. So, so how do you not have a preconceived notion when you you know, when you approach someone, I think it's easy to say that, but it's extremely hard yeah. to do. So what was the process like for you?
1: Oh, a hundred percent. Um obviously I was nineteen when I did my um anthropology degree, and of course you have a joke and a laugh with your friends about oh my god, what shamanism is or so, yeah, we don't believe in magic, we don't believe in that. Um, but I think once you go into this once you go in to see how they live it becomes more of a fascination rather than an opinion you become more like oh okay so people see the world completely different to the way i see the world and obviously i think the younger you the the younger you are the more you struggle with such an idea because obviously there's a lot around peer pressure and there's a lot around joking with your friends and kind of submitting to the way everything is. Whereas the the older you get, I think you see the world differently. And I think that's what happened to me. Yes, I obviously didn't want to have the built opinion before I went into shamanism, but I did. But once I kind of crossed that threshold and lived with them and understood them and interviewed them, that's when I realized that, yes, they are different to us. They completely see the world differently, but there's nothing wrong with that. It doesn't mean that they're wrong or it doesn't mean I'm right. And I think that's what kind of I progressed eventually over the years. You don't, I don't think you learn it overnight. I think you have to progress it and I have to, you have to cross some sort of threshold in your life where you're like, right. Okay. So I think it's time for me to kind of stop basing my opinions on just things that I see and start making my opinions from different angles, I think that's what it is But I think it takes a very long time to do, and I don't think it happens overnight. Unfortunately,
0: I have to ask a childish question because I'm just curious. How do you get in contact with those shamans? Like, <laughs> do you um, email them, or like, how do you know about them? I know it's,
1: a, it's um, honestly it's a it's a very bizarre story, but um, weirdly enough, my mom she is a she's a woman of science. She had, she did her PhD originally in biology and then she did her and Phil in law so she's she's a woman of science she believes in science completely but then she became fascinated with the shamanic world and she became fascinated with things like runes and it's basically old stones with a written language on it, it used to use for Celtic traditions and she became fascinated with tarot cards and she put me in touch with a shaman <laughs> believe it or not um I kind of, I didn't realize she knew any shamans. And when I told her about the idea for my dissertation, she was like, oh, I can put you in contact with shamans. And they did. And then kind of that shaman, because the group of shamans is actually quite small. Um, They know pretty much each other. And they said, oh, actually, there is a village in Siberia um, that only shamans live. And you can go there and study them. They will give you an open access apart from you would not be able to ask questions from the people who are being healed. So I wasn't able to ask questions from their patients. And I said, yes, that's definitely something I would love to do for my project. And that's exactly what I did. But originally my mom put me in contact with a shaman and (laughs) coming from a a very scientific background as she does, realizing that she knows shamans and she talks about magic is is fascinating.
0: Right. Um, maybe we can just move on to Dalexia as well. Um, not sure if I got the pronunciation right, but um, I think when you first reached out to me, you, you expressed that um, you feel that people with such a condition are, are underrepresented in academia and, and mm-hmm. they allow the condition to stop them from pursuing their dreams in this field. So, yeah. can you share a personal experience? Um, so, how do you first know that? You have this condition. I'm um, not sure if that's a Just good like way of putting him. it, but yeah. yeah. But, but what was the whole experience and, and how do you, you know, I'm going to ask something that sounds very judgmental, but uh, the term is how do you manage it? Because um, this world is obviously kind of very, it, it fulfills the, the the desires of the majority. And unfortunately, this is not the most common. Um, that's not how most people view the world in a way. So you're at at a disadvantage. So how do you um, cope and how do you actually um, make things work for you?
1: Yeah, I think that's actually quite an important question. It's, um, you see dyslexia, I have a long history with dyslexia. I originally moved to UK, as I said, when I was 17 to do my A-levels and I wanted to progress to university of course. I had previously struggled academically in Russia. And I actually, when I came to UK, I also struggled academically. And back in the day, dyslexia wasn't as recognized in Russia as it is now. And my teachers didn't see it. I didn't know what dyslexia was. And when I came to UK, everyone thought it was a language barrier. Because obviously, I was the only Russian student in my school. And no teachers actually thought it could possibly be dyslexia they all set it down to a language barrier and um they advised me to hire a tutor and study language excessively and for some unknown reason it didn't help I spoke English very well bear in mind English is not my my native tongue language and um I, I still spoke English very well and there was a difference in my writing it was not it was I wasn't writing what I was saying, if that makes sense. And um, no one picked it up for years. So i had done two years of my A-levels. I've done a year of university. And then um, I went into, it was almost middle or towards the end of my second year of university when one of my lecturers, uh, she knew me for about a year at this point. She came up to me and said, Elena, have you ever considered you might be dyslexic? And I said to her, um no because I don't know what dyslexia is and she said I strongly recommend based on your writing and the difference in your writing and your speaking that you get a dyslexia test done and um that's exactly what I did I had no idea what dyslexia was I obviously went home and googled it and start kind of my research research into it and um once I had my test they confirmed that yes I was severely dyslexic and um it was quite interesting because it was like a turning point in my academic career. I realized I wasn't actually stupid and it wasn't something wrong that I was doing. I was actually, it was, I had an exact idea of why I was doing things differently to other people. And I think that was such a big drastic change for me because before that I thought I was just not good enough academically. I just wasn't good enough writing. I wasn't good enough reading. It turned out, no, it took, I was dyslexic. And I think that what made me realize I can do better. And I think after getting my diagnosis, I had implemented several things into my routine. And it took me years to polish it, to be honest. But I have specific screens for when I read different colors. Um, When I used to study for tests and exams, for example, I instead of doing it, instead of writing it, I had to talk it out with someone. So because I have a fantastic, according to my test, I have a fantastic um, memory, so sound memory. So when I talk about things and when I want to revise for my exams, I have to talk. If I don't, I will forget it. So once I start implementing those little changes, my grades went up from mid-50s to mid-60s. And in the UK, that's from 2-2 to one And that's a big, big jump. Um, So I think that was kind of my, the original startup point for my dyslexia. But then I kind of decided to look more and more into it because there wasn't many internationals to this day. I don't really know a single international student with dyslexia, to be honest. It's either misdiagnosed or people just don't pick up on it because why would you, isn't it, if you're a lecturer from the UK or if you're a teacher from the UK, the first assumption you would make... Um,
0: my Zoom just crashed and I'm so sorry. That <laughs> That's okay. It's, it's a feeling of like having your life just ended like that. <laughs> I'm, so, <laughs> I'm so sorry. Um, and you're talking about your experience if, um, there's just one, like I, I struggle with some words, so I can't pronounce them. So. Um, and, and you're talking about how You're looking into it and realize that um, that up to today you don't know of any international students who who are diagnosed with it. And so the story stopped there. Yeah,
1: Yeah. sorry about
0: Um, that. You don't know, it's it's my fault. Um, (laughs) uh, Please please continue, thank
1: you. You see, uh, to this day, I don't actually know a single international student with dyslexia. And I think it's because it's either not recognized. Or not picked up on. Because obviously when you come to this country, the first assumption I think lecturers and teachers make about you is the fact that you're foreign. You speak different language, unless you come from US. But in the reality, you speak different language, you have different alphabet. And I think that's a plays a huge part in this whole process. I believe that there are a lot of people out there who are dyslexic because dyslexia is very common. And I think people coming into this country without even realizing that they have it and by recognizing that they do have it, it makes such a dramatic change in their academic career. And I also believe a lot of people who have dyslexia don't stay in academia because academia is not meant for people like me with dyslexia because we have to write so much and we have to read so much. But because... Everyone dyslexic differently. So everyone has different stages and everyone with dyslexia has different things they're good at. You see, I'm not good at reading. So I have to read several times in order for it to sink into my head. So because it takes me twice longer than a general student without dyslexia, academic world is not really meant for me really. But there are certain adjustments you can do. And this is what I want people to understand. Once you realize that you are dyslexic, once you have that diagnosis, you can start process by turning those things into strengths. Like, yes, you might be slow at reading, but wait a minute, if you, because you have to read several times for it to be in your head, that makes maybe you understand far more than a general student does because you have to read and read and read in order to succeed. And um, it's the same with writing. It's like the more you write and the more you practice writing, the better it gets. Um, the less mistakes you make, things like that. And I think it's very important for people to see dyslexia not as something that should be afraid of or not something that should be embarrassed about. It's more of a, um, you're, I like to call it, you're just wired differently. And that's what um, I kind of stick with. Yes, I'm just wired differently. I'm not stupid. I'm not, I don't, it's not that I don't understand the subject. I'm just wired differently. I have to approach the subject in a different way. And I think once you get the diagnosis of dyslexia, you can learn how to approach different subjects in different ways. And I think that's really important. And that way, the academia becomes I think more like more encouraging of people like us, like people with dyslexia. And I just think, I, I believe there are people out there, but just don't talk about it as openly. And in the UK, I think dyslexia is very, it's very common, but the percentage of people going from even doing um, undergraduate degree or masters, progressing into PhD or progressing into academia, very, very little. And I think it, it's, just, it's just really sad to see because there's nothing wrong with you. There's completely nothing wrong with you. It's just you have to approach different subjects differently. That's all it is. It just takes time. It takes patience. It takes learning and failing and then learning again <laughs> to succeed. But yeah, that was um, my whole journey with dyslexia. Um,
0: I have a business idea. <laughs> um <laughs> If if whatever you've mentioned is not, um, it hasn't been curated. I think that's a huge um, market opportunity here, just for the creation of resources and for how you approach things. Because you talk about all the all the various um systems that you have currently in place, and I just think that the, the average um dyslexic person, this dyslexic person, probably doesn't have that. That expertise in many in, in in coping with, um, the mainstream mm-hmm. representation of media and all that. So, I think if you uh, say as a cause or <laughs> anything, I think, I think not only will it, like you know really help people. But um, this is, I'm gonna sound so blunt, but it's a good money making opportunity here. <laughs>
1: No, I, I, would, I would love to, honestly, I would love to this to be kind of my cause. And this is why I do things like this. This is why I'm active on Twitter. This is why I'm active on things like podcasts and things like that. Because I want people to understand that just because you're wired differently doesn't mean you can't succeed. You just have to approach it differently. You have to have patience. You have to learn how to turn your mistakes, how to turn your weaknesses into your strengths. And that's exactly what I've done. And I think... Yes, I think it shows in my writing. I was reading from what I used to write like to what I write like now. Oh, God, it's a drastic change. And it makes me so happy because I succeeded at that. I learned how to cope with writing differently, how to read differently. And I think everyone is capable of that. And um, But I hope doing podcasts like this or being active on Twitter and I hope it helps people to believe in themselves and just because you have a learning difficulty whether you know whether if it's in dyslexia or other learning difficulties it doesn't matter you still can succeed in academia you just have to approach it from the perspective of your weaknesses but turning them into strengths. and I think that's what people have to understand and I think that's really personally for me it's really important
0: so just googling as well and the number one rank search result doesn't seem to be any cost so um, I don't know if you're really interested I can probably just ask around and try to hook you up with someone who is a cost creator and perhaps this can be some project exploit well. Um, just just for the reason that you know I think it's, it's probably an underserved market and because probably people don't understand enough of it and I think I um, think just there, are just there are just very few people who have made this so far in the academic career and despite them being you know dyslexic and in an environment that just doesn't cater to them so I think authority in this I think <laughs> even just I can try and hook you up with someone who, who knows a thing or two about course creation so um That'd be presentation, yeah. Um, if you want to, just let me know. I'll try and ask around, and I can't promise, but um, I'll try and find someone who who has experience creating courses. I have to pass on this opportunity because I don't think I'm the person who can help you launch a course yeah. properly. And I think
1: it, it, I just think you there's know, too much
0: was- potential here, so <laughs> I don't want to miss <laughs> your knowledge. No,
1: that sounds great. I also think you um get discouraged a lot throughout the academic journey, that because your writing isn't as strong or because your reading isn't as strong you just get really discouraged um by looking at your poor grades or not high enough grades and then you just think why can't I do this And once you kind of realize why you can turn it into no I can and I think that's what drives me to do things like this so I'd really appreciate if you can find anyone interested in things like that I I would love that
0: Sure. Um I will try and ask around once we end this call. So um perhaps we can I don't think I'm more of a time, it's about nine twenty on your side right now. Um I suppose we have talked about a presentation format that mm-hmm. we are trying for the first time on this podcast. So um I'm gonna let you take over the reins. Do you have any slides or anything you want to share or
1: slides? No, because I think um, I'm trying to do this presentation as for non-specialized audience. And I think if I put loads of slides up, um, people wouldn't understand what I'm talking okay. about because it's such a specific, um, it's very narrow discipline, what I do. So I think I I would try to explain it in general terms. And I think I would give the end results. And I think that's what people would find the most fascinating.
0: Okay. So I'm going to let you take for right now.
1: Okay. <laughs> So um, my current research consists of two phases. The first phase basically examines the interrelationship between the dark triad, which is a collection of three dark personality traits, which are narcissism, masculinism, and psychopathy. And in combination with the big five personality variables, which are normal personality variable ranges, which are conscientious, neuroticism, agreeableness, and to others. And it's basically considers, my whole my whole um, research considers a cross-cultural aspect of that. So my two main behaviors that I study is prejudice and aggression. And I look at it via personality perspective. So why, why personality perspective? See, the research in personality psychology has collected an extensive base of evidence on different dimensions of personality, on different behaviors. However, it seems to be lacking a very solid cross-cultural background. So not many researchers venture into cross-cultural sphere and try to understand specific behaviors by cross-cultural differences. So that's exactly what I've done. I basically took two studies, looking at dark triads and big five in relation to prejudice and aggression by a cross-cultural comparison of Russia and United Kingdom. The reason why I chose Russia is because it is a non-Western representative country. It is somewhere in between the West and the East. Why I chose the UK is because it's a purely Western country and it represents a very Western background. And I went in, collected the data, and this is exactly what I've done. So basically, my two phases, I have two phases in my research. The first, pa- first phase, like I said, examines interrelationship between the dark triad and the big five. And the second phase uses results from the first phase to inform the baseline of a model and it and tested it towards prejudice and aggression. I found doing my research very fascinating. It, it was absolutely amazing seeing different cultures and how they compare on issues that are relevant to this day so it's like prejudice and aggression even though we live in 21st century having still having that prejudice attitudes towards specific groups of people is such a big thing and not a lot of researchers still don't understand why it's happening and why can't we move forward and progress as a society towards a better future and leaving that prejudice attitudes behind it's a similar with aggression we have we share that aggression and it could be, aggression could be biological, it could be cognitive, it could be due to the environment. And this is what I basically looked at. But the most interesting thing about my research is my findings. And the, in terms of UK sample, the findings were correlated with the current literature and it was very, very straightforward. It was interesting to see how people respond to prejudicial attitudes, how people respond to aggression scales within um, UK. However, the most interesting bit came from Russia, which I didn't expect. I knew there's going to be a cultural difference between the United Kingdom and Russia, considering how opposite they are in terms of their political sphere, cultural sphere, background, history, etc. What I didn't expect the difference to be as big. You see, one of the main findings is basically to do with relationship between certain personality variables and my outcome variables which are prejudice and aggression one of the biggest things was i think i mentioned it previously during the podcast but it was to do with um, agreeableness and aggression usually within the literature within psychological literature you would see that agreeableness and aggression are not correlated or they have a negative correlation in russia they had a strong positive correlation which was very shocking to see. And I couldn't get my head around, how is that possible? And to begin with, I thought it was uh, something to do with my data, something to do with my scales. But it turned out it wasn't, it was an actual finding. And what I use to explain this this finding is basically a system justification theory. And system justification theory within social psychology It's basically a system justifying beliefs um, that serve a psychological baseline of a function of a society. It proposes that people have several underlying needs which vary from individual to individual that can be satisfied by the defense and justification of the status quo. And this is where current political climate in Russia comes into. People, I think, have no solid control of their lives anymore that they are willing to justify what is happening to them and what is happening in their country and agree with it even if it's an aggression and i don't think people see aggression as aggression anymore i think it just see it as their normal way of life and this was one of my biggest findings in terms of um, my results You see also according to system justification people Theory, people desire not only to hold favorable attitudes about themselves, for example, like ego justification and the group to which they belong, but also to hold positive attitudes about over, overreacting, I suppose, to social structures in, the, in which they're intertwined. And that's what brings basically everything together. That's what explains why people see. why why there's such a strong positive correlation between agreeableness and aggression, because people justify it as a complete norm within that society. That's where the cultural difference comes in. In the UK, there was a strong negative correlation between agreeableness and aggression, which again goes completely normal within the literature. And that's where that cultural difference comes in. And that's where you can explain the little differences between the Russia and the United Kingdom. And um, in terms of within personal justification, I think the person defends a positive self-image of themselves, even if that image is not desirable outcome for the rest of the society. And I think that's what Russian people unfortunately do, is because they're trying to justify what's happening to them in their positive terms and in more terms acceptable to their moral ego, rather than something that's completely unacceptable in other societies and i think that's very important and i that's where the majority that's where the basically the heart of my research is so i hope um, i will carry on with my findings because i haven't finished analyzing everything just yet but i will carry on analyzing it and hopefully in the future i would like to see comparing not just russia and united kingdom but take some another country like far east country or far west country and compare for example several of them and countries in between and i think it would be extremely interesting to see what china is like on that scale and what u.s is like on that scale and have all these four countries see what cultural differences between these things are because if there is a culture if my findings will be approved for example within china and they have similar findings to russia and u.s have similar findings to uk it would basically show that such model can be divided into two and applied to two completely different cultures like the western culture and non-western culture and i think that's a quite a big finding but um yes that's um my presentation
0: sure. so um if anyone know who's interested in in whatever you've mentioned um usually I'll just ask, like, you know, where can they learn more about it? Because it's still a current research. So where can they get their feet wet to learn about the things you've mentioned?
1: I you mean, in terms of what literature to read, that type of um, things
0: yeah. Or... Or, or... Yeah, I guess that's the best approach. Yeah. yeah.
1: So you see, I haven't published my dissertation yet because I haven't finished it yet. But um, once it's published, it would be... That would be a starting point. <laughs> but in terms of... Um, Understanding why people justify certain behaviors, why people justify the action of their leaders, for example. It would be interesting to read a social justification system justification theory. And I think that would be one of the big starting points because from there you can go on and see where that takes you, because there are different theories, there are thousands of different theories that explain behavioral outcomes. But I think system justification theory is very good and very relevant at this exact moment because of the political climate within the world and explaining different political situations, explaining why people vote, for example, for certain leaders. You can start there and kind of work your way where it takes you, depending on the country you are choosing to kind of understand, depending on the culture, environment, etc. So let's. I would really highly recommend to start from system justification theory in terms of explaining political climate within your country. And if you want to learn more about personality, like, for example, dark triad, which is, again, um, narcissism, mechanism and psychopathy, and the big five, you can start with um, reading on them, just read up on how our personality is on this huge scale, rather than just defined by certain little things. We're all on this spectrum of a personality and we all have dark personality traits and normal personality traits. Just some people have them more than others. So that's what I would recommend.
0: Okay. Um, thank you so much for your time today. So um, where can where can audience um, connect with you or find you?
1: Yes, you can connect with me on Twitter, which would be um, Alensky, HA.
0: <laughs> or I will you put that in the, in the yes, notes as <laughs> well, so don't worry
1: um, And you can email me, anyone can email me anytime. I'm really happy answering questions. I also do little different events. So for example, Skype a scientist event, that's quite popular. I actually did an event for international school in Singapore for a Skype, Skype a scientist event. And um, I, was, I talked about bullying and things like that within the school, but uh, it, was, it was interesting to see. So you can catch me on events like this and I do loads of conferences as well.
0: Okay, sure. Thank you so much for your time, Anina. Um, Thank you. I will follow up in an email about what we talk about the course just now. So That's thanks again for today. Bye-bye. Thank
1: you. Bye.
0: Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you like this episode, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts and share this episode with one to three friends. I started this podcast with the intention of having awesome conversations with interesting people and having your support means a lot. Thank you.